Songezo Mapete on SAFM. Oral History Association of South Africa National Conference, OHASA, will hold its national conference under the theme The World in Troubled Times, Oral History Challenges and Opportunities, with the year being the year of Charlotte Maitreig, 150 years from her birth, making the sesquintessential, oh, that word, making the sesquin, that word anyway, a very important milestone in the these big words you are using, eh? Historiography, and I've tried to read this, I don't know how many times, in collection of new research of South Africa. I beg your pardon there. To complement this milestone anyway, South Africa is currently experiencing what some may call a woman leadership crisis and gender-based violence against women. It is therefore necessary to silence and reflect on the teachings of the giants of the 20th century. Through this year's conference, Ohasa hopes to contend with notions of celebration, commemoration, leadership as narratives of memory to remember and reflect on our past and to understand the immense contribution of women. Professor Christina Lundman, Head of Publications at OHASA, is on the line to talk to us about these matters and a whole lot more. Prof Lundman, thank you so much for your time. Uh, Good evening. What are we talking about? What is the conference essentially talking to and I'm asking that question in the context of sub-themes. Uhasa, um, as you have just said, is um, is a, a community of uh, oral history researchers, and they come annually to this conference to present their research. And it's very exciting, you know, to um, come and tell each other about the interviews you have done, how you teach oral history, um, just today, and, and, and thereby rewriting or writing a part of South Africa's history that has not been written. As you know, our history, for political reasons, has been very one-sidedly written and explored. And this is an attempt, actually, by oral historians to restore history and to restore the stories of people, revive the stories. And I, this morning, I had a long interview with Brigali Abam, for instance, mm, mm. who is 88 years old. and 88? Oh, she's 88 and up and about, time? you know. And she has some very, very strong views on elections and electoral processes. But she's also, the, of course, the chair of the South African Council of Churches. So she is just sort of a, a library of stories. Oh, wow, that Jeez. was wonderful. Another interview I did some time ago was with Mani Ben Sita, for instance, and she is uh, she's the daughter of Nana Sita. If you live in Pretoria, you will know there's a Nana Sita. Nana Sita, Street. yes, yes. Yeah, he was the he was the um, uh, the secretary of the Transvaal Indian Congress. He was uh, um, incarcerated seven times for refusing to leave his home because of the Group Areas Act. But anyway, and she has in, in the meantime, she has died. And if those stories have not been written down, we would have lost them. And I think that is the aim of these conferences and this research is to save history that that would have would have been lost uh, by now. How um, important in all of this is language? Yeah. Because yeah. a lot of the time, more particularly when you infuse the cultural dynamics to the evolving culture within the culture it is told 
by words, not so much by recorded documents and related artifacts. Yes. And, and, and that is the culture, that is the custom, that is how it happens. If I can paint a picture with my words, an elder sitting with the younger generation under a tree around a fire, where there is that community engagement and also the transfer of wisdom and knowledge and information. Mm. Now, a lot of that in the African context certainly is locked in language. Now, how yeah. do these conferences respond to those challenges? Nine out of ten yeah. times, if not ten out of ten times, they would always be happening in English and in spaces where typically where the custodians of that oral history are not inherently there or that is not their immediate mm. community. And I think that is a challenge within the challenge of oral history. Yeah, no, um, that is, of course, a challenge. And um, let me just start by saying that um, it's very important, as you've just said, that to consider words as data. Data is not, um, uh, you know, only things that have already been published or something like that, but mm. the words of people. And therefore, most of the time when we talk about the interviews we have done, um, we, uh, um, we would do it like, give it through like unmediatedly. We, we don't mediate it. We don't interpret it. We say interpretation is colonization. So you don't interpret somebody's words. When Regalia Bum says, um, you know, this is what how she expresses herself, that is how you give it through to the audience that this person remains in control of her own words. And I think that is the excitement. But now you say the language problem is mm. very big. Oral history research is very expensive because much of our research is done in rural areas and where we don't understand uh, all the languages um, and therefore you have to you, you need to rent, to hire an interpreter and you need a cultural interpreter because you may not understand the cultural um, agendas and references as you've just said uh, so it's very expensive actually already research but people uh, we are very much supported by the Department of Sports, Arts and Culture. They also give money for us. We can't do it this year, but usually we go to schools in the nearby area and then we teach the learners how to do oral history. And they come to the conference and they have a whole session for themselves where they, you know, they went to their family members and retrieved their stories mm. or uh, things like that. So... Um, it's very, and I think also there's a there's a growing um, uh, feeling, even amongst um, um, ministers of education and so on, that oral history must get much more pro prominence at schools, um, that we can really feel and live and transform and uh, well um, perform actually our mm. history um, more in in even in our own in our own languages and eventually just sharing it with one another. And the people who attend this conference and give papers, about 50 or so of them at each conference, they are from different cultures. They are from, uh, usually they are from the Department of, of Arts and Culture or they are from universities. And a very prominent feature of oral history research in South Africa is, of course, uh, the healing of memories. You don't go to a person and just, you know, retrieve their mm, memory, mm, mm. publish it under your name. There must be a healing element 
and that is also one of the sub-themes of this conference is sort of oral history as a form of therapy because, um, yes. you know, it can be that you do an interview with somebody and that person remembering some very traumatic time, yes. for instance, during apartheid, getting totally re-traumatized and then you don't know what to do now and you leave this person in this re-traumatized state. So you need, you need to know how to sort of stabilize such a person that you don't, um, you know... <laughs> And that you have some feature, some some aspect of, of healing coming into an interview. So it's not just sitting around telling stories from suburbia, you know. It's like, it's, it's really um, giving a person a chance as an equal, equal to the researcher, as an equal then to present... Um, to present the the deepest feelings of what he or she wants to express, therefore it's not um, it's it's not about the eternal truth when you interview somebody. Um, yes, when you write down the story, you will have some some voices coming in from outside to verify what this person has said, but it's not ultimately of are you telling the truth or are you not telling the truth? I'm going to catch you out as a researcher. Ha, ah, here you have lied, you know. Mm, it mm. is really trying to capture the depth of a person's trauma or joy or whatever that person wants to express. Talking about oral history, the sinking of Mendy, there is a quotation attributed to um, one of the leaders on the ship at the time. This, of course, is happening in 1917, and everybody who is a historian would know what happened to the Mendy in South African history, yeah. African men who goes. But where I'm actually going on with this is there's a particular quotation that is attributed to Reverend Isaac Washapi Gyoba, who is said to have said, I'm going to try my level best to quote what he is said to have said about the sinking of the ship at the time and how then he rallies his troops to get on with the program and pretty much accept their fate as their destiny. Okay. Yeah. Now, in that instance, no one survives to tell their tale from an authoritative perspective to say, these are yeah. the words I hear. And even if that person did hear the words, it would for the most part be paraphrasing as opposed to a direct quotation. Yeah. How then, for instance, Fred Kumalo is one of the persons who said, parts of oral history might not necessarily, in fact, have taken place. But yeah. to tell the context of what was taking place and to augment the stature of the figure to whom a particular quote is attributed to, not that it happened as a matter of fact, but is worthy in telling the story. Perhaps we get into the environment of research, yeah, and distinguishing between what is fact and what is appropriate to augment the story in the context of oral history. Those, shall I say, discrepancies are inherent in the task then of unlocking that information, reliving mm -hmm. their history, including the pain and the trauma that you've referred to, but at the same time there's almost this inherent compromise, if I can use that word, 
insofar as it relates to accuracy? How do we move and navigate that space? Yeah, well, you say it so well that I think we should make you an honorary member of OHASA. Um, you see, the, the point is that now in the case of like SAS Mendy and, uh, and, and also Charlotte Makreke, who would have been 150 years old this year, they are no longer alive to interview. As you say, at the, uh, on the Mendy, they, they, they even then did not survive. So how are you going through oral history now going to retrieve this history? Mm. So. In the, in the case of Charlotte, then you would try to get some people who knew her or who knew people who knew her. But to that, those are the restrictions of oral histories, that you can only interview people that are still alive, to put it now so bluntly. And uh, so, yes, oral history has its restrictions. But as I've said, is that um, oral history is, is to rectify history and um, there are some false um, depictions of history that need to be mended and trans- transformed. Um, but in the first place, oral history is not about looking for the ultimate truth, which we all know anyway doesn't exist. Mm. It is about how people experience this, that we, um, that we actually say we sacrifice objectivity for a subjectivity that is, um, you know, every story has an integrity of its own. That is sort of the fine, that is sort of the bottom line of oral history. Every story has an integrity of its own. And um, you accept the integrity of the person who tells the story, and um, that is now how we, how we handle this truth aspect. The fact is that this person is, well, you know, you have also have to get um, um, sort of ethical clearance before you can do an interview. And this person then also signs for that, a consent form that you can uh, use mm-hmm. his or her information. That at the end, they must also sign a consent form that they, they give you um, a consent to publish this as their words. Um, it's quite a cumbersome and responsible um, yeah, because it is research. It, 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 it is ultimately research, and, and, and the appropriate source ought to be appropriately accredited. But let's just quickly go back to the question of the credibility and integrity of the source, almost equating to the integrity and value of the information per se. Isn't it in itself a layered point? Because sometimes you might get, if you will, a discredited or beleaguered individual who even for that moment can summon their truth in as much as it could be his truth or her truth, but nonetheless be their truth, an accurate reflection to the extent possible of the history. But because this person is coming from a compromised position, the story similarly suffers a compromise that ordinarily it shouldn't. How then in that space is oral history able to navigate those tensions or those compromises? Well, as I say, we usually um, invite other voices into the conversation. Like if somebody has told a story and it doesn't really make sense, um, or you you have a suspicion that this person is very subjectively manipulating the facts, then you can invite other voices, published voices, voices of contemporaries into it. 
But then it may be that this person would say, now I'm not going to sign this off because you don't uh, take my integrity sure. uh, into account. So, yeah, it, it is a very um, a difficult process where you must gain the confidence of this person who is going to talk to you. It has also become big business that big figures or um, you know, figures with high profiles, they have a, a community of people around them who want money, and um, and actually, you know, want to uh, actually, uh, you know, want to manipulate the whole process, um, and makes it into a business um, to for you to write the story of a specific person. Um, there are many pitfalls. It's not as if you can just sit down, have a nice talk, and then publish something under your name. No, not at all. Not at all. But I would say that um, if you give through the story of a, of a person, as I said, unmediatedly, say this is what, how this person sees this. You can compare it with other views, which are these and these and these. This may be one of the stories, one of the perspectives on the story. That's Let's all go you back. can do, actually. And that is also one of the main themes of this conference, is mm. methodology, you know, and techniques, and uh, uh, also, you know, how... Unlock, how do you unlock stories, hidden stories? Where do you look for them, these unspoken histories? How mm. do you get people to tell them? You know, as I say, some stories are so painful that you cannot retell them. Um, and how do you then build up a, um, uh, some confidence? How do you uh, confidentiality? How do you deal with all these things when you retrieve such a story? Because you are walking into somebody's life. And what is also a very important methodological issue is that, you know, when you tell, when you publish somebody's story, you are freezing the walking voice. I said that today to Brigalia Bangina. I, I interviewed her five years ago. Then I froze her story, but she has walked in the meantime. She has walked, and now I come, and I hold it to this frozen story, which I, which she told me five years ago. And now, um, you know, I must take into account that she's five years later, she's in another place. So, um, yeah, it's difficult to turn oral history into a frozen written story. Because people, after they've told you those stories, sometimes they, they feel they shouldn't have told that story. And when you come with a written story, they say, no, 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 don't mm, do that. Mm, don't, mm, don't publish that. And all their work is gone and because they have moved from that position and moved from that perspective. Let me ask this question, Prof. Lundman, because we are running out of time, some six, seven minutes, and a couple of issues that I do want to probe, one of which is something you re- referenced earlier on, that you want to inculcate this program back into schools. Yeah. Would this take in the form of a curriculum or something far more nuanced, for instance, as an extracurricular activity where, first of all, it being an extracurricular activity, invariably you will attract those who want to participate as almost give learners an option as a curriculum that I'll rather take this instead of that. If it is something of the former, that being an extracurricular thing, what I take from this invariably, by virtue, 
of it being a horror history exercise that it engages in some of these things you've touched on. History, language and the development of language and the skills associated with speaking, public speaking, debating, formulating an argument, advancing an argument, and contemplating contrary views to that argument. Research techniques as well, which is a lifelong skill that if you have, you've got it, and it will always stand you in good stead, not necessarily through oral history, but in any space of academia, together with also infusing a necessary component of oral history, and that is the arts. So if we are mm. going to be talking, for instance, stick fighting in the closer community, for argument's mm. sake, it's near impossible to just demonstrate the art of stick fighting without talking how stick fighting came to being a sport among headmen, head boys out there in the fields, which was a way of establishing a pecking order. The stick fight on its own would not tell the story in as much as the story verbally alone will not tell the story without the demonstration of the art. So how then do we create this movement, social order, where oral history is given prominence in society and prominence including occupying spaces on the national broadcaster. For instance, we could have a session here on this platform where we'd look at oral history. We could build themes around that, not just, for instance, the Grahamstown Arts Festival, which happens once a year, but festivals around the country that have a build-up to the National Arts Festival so that more and more communities in South Africa are part of the mainstream. They see themselves yeah. represented in the mainstream. They are the mainstream because the things that are happening there speak to their respective identities. Yeah, yeah what you've just said is, you know, just shows how important oral history is, and, um, and especially on the forming of, uh, of an identity of the child in the development of his or her identity. And... Um, as I say, on ministerial level, this has been accepted as, as something um, oral history becoming part of the school curriculum um, in the very, very near future. It is already part, um, partly part of history, um, which is being taught at schools. And uh, there are also some papers here on how oral history is being taught at schools. As I said, Uhasa, then because we have our conference every year in another province, um, so it is our 18th conference. So we have already made almost two rounds of um, um, of provinces where our uh, this year it is in Bloemfontein, mm-hmm. or actually it's in Clarence, and then we go to nearby schools and we teach we we, we teach oral history methodology to the learners. But this year we couldn't do it, of course, because of the COVID. Yes. And um, then, uh, so it is already part of uh, part of the school curriculum. It's going to become much more prominent um, in the very near future. And at the universities, it's, some universities already offer it as a, as a subject. There are centres and institutes for oral history and memory studies. Almost at every university, which offer courses in this regard, so this is really a growing field. It is, and as you have so aptly said, why it should be growing because it it catches the identity, the the soul actually, of people, and of the way in which they understand their own history, and the way in which their history can can make them strong. 
and, uh, and at the same time inclusive by listening to one another's stories. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, yeah I, I'm, I'm glad to say that this is indeed a growing uh, science and a growing practice and that it needs to be performed as well, not only spoken, but be performed and being taught scientifically. The word inclusive that you've mentioned is precisely among many other benefits to oral history being a movement, if you like, is precisely to deal with South Africa's national question and issues around race relations. We probably are more threatened of each other and by each other because we don't know each other. Speak to Afrikaners and the English and you talk to them about the Anglo-Boer War you would once swear they are talking about two different things. And that's yeah. because one interest group over the other doesn't seem to hear where the other comes from. There's problematic... In fact, even that framing is problematic because the modern-day reference is the South African war contemplating that Africans were used to fight this community of settlers in a war that was taking place for South African resources and control in a land to which both were foreign. And so the nuances attached to all of this, so even just questioning what happened between 1899 and 1902, the Anglo-Boer War, the South African War, and you speak to the many languages that were represented there from an oral history perspective, you then get or should or would get the sense that there are many contested meanings or understandings reasons behind a conflict that at least it is known was for a political stroke economic benefit for whoever would prevail always still at the expense of africans yeah once i did a paper on dolstrom um you know in mpumalanga Mm -hmm. and on the um in the belay i interviewed people in the township there um, whose forefathers uh, lived around there, in the Bele and Zulu people. And the the second part of the paper was done by somebody who only spoke about the Anglo-Boo War, which was very prominent there, because it's near Mashadu Dorp, where this President Kruger was, um, was staying. So, but it was two totally different histories, and they haven't heard each other before. It was two totally different histories, and through this one paper, we could listen to one another. So it's exactly what you say. Yeah, we could talk for more. Well, if ever you need me to in any way assist, either through this platform or as an individual, because you did send out an invitation, I think I am passionate enough to say I would be more than glad to participate on this program and on a platform that speaks to these issues, oral history in this country, because it is that identity that I know invariably, if I sit long enough, I'll find myself. Professor Lundman, thank you for your time. Yes, thank you for uh, asking me to participate. And, uh, and also thank you for your invitation. We will make use of it. Prof. Christina Lundman, Head of Publications at the Oral History Association of South Africa. 21.45, folks, and as quickly as it started, so it ends. Our date for this week is over. Prepare yourselves for next week. I will be back, no doubt.